Wait, hold on. Was that a good race? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. But James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. When you said, wait, hold on, I thought you were about to say something about your electronics, but it was actually the intro. No, I'm go. just that talented of actor, me. I'm a voice coach. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I hold on. I be whoever I want to be. <laughs> I, I okay. so almost responded, what? What's going on? And then I was <laughs> like, hey, what's wrong, intro? Tom? <laughs> well, if this yeah. doesn't work out for you, Tom, you've got a, um, a wonderful career ahead in voiceover acting. In being in that, the surprised man in EastEnders. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 14 of F1 in Review, the episode, the hour and part one of where we look back at round seven of this year's Grand Prix calendar, the Monaco Grand Prix. I'm Tom Claiborne and as ever I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher. You can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter as well as F1 in Review. We do have our own accounts on there and we start off first of all with a clarification a point of order if you will not an apology because last episode i said it concluded the episode 13 by saying the monaco grand prix would start at 2 p.m that being british summertime that was the plan that was the intention we looked like we were going for a 2 p.m start until five ten minutes beforehand and uh, the eagle-eyed listeners out there will notice we started an hour later 3 p.m that being british time as well so for those who don't know what happened the heavens open, teams are scrambling around to get their cars dry, keep them dry, and to get them some wet tyres and intermediates as well. Originally, as per every single race seemingly, race control said, yep, you do what you want with tyres, you go intermediates, wet, or dries if you fancy, like, not finishing the race. Before scrapping that and going, no, 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 mandating everyone must be on four wet tyres. They're saying after this, this was done for safety reasons, considering there was no wet racing that had taken place or indeed hot laps prior to that Sunday. And that they said also as well, they couldn't have restarted the race earlier when it stopped raining because there's that weird period between about 2.30 and 3 o'clock where people were saying, why aren't we racing? It's come out, the race controller said that uh, that didn't happen because of a power outage at the circuit. And then after literally testing the waters and it being red flagged again, we had a rolling start behind the safety car. Not a standing one, a rolling start there. So really the most important aspect of the Sunday of the Monaco Grand Prix was gone, courtesy of the elements and decision making. But we know that Formula 1 is no stranger to rain. Monaco isn't either. What did we make of the handling when it came to the race by race control here? I think we were all pretty frustrated, weren't we? Because... It felt like everyone was sort of making it up as we went along. And it's not the first time F1 has encountered rain in its very long history. And I suppose you might say, well, it's the first time F1's encountered rain of that level with these new generation of cars. But to be honest, I would say that's more of a selling point of the starting in the rain than, than anything else. And it was just a little bit annoying. And I think everyone was was feeling that angst and that itchy feet to get going i have to give it to all of the f1 commentators that managed to commentate for 70 minutes about nothing <laughs> because <laughs> i don't know yeah. I, I don't know how they did it to be honest because they did they did keep it interesting we had a, a lovely ramble about the different type of pop-up gazebos that were appearing up and down the paddock and uh the 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 depth of the puddles um i enjoyed the shots of the 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 people pushing um the water out from one place and into another place you know what are we going to do for the next 10 minutes well we might as well sort of push this water around um i believe the team principal of williams started moving 
tyres from place A to place B uh, just because it was something to do. Christian Horner was pictured mingling with uh, the uh, engineers, no doubt trying to strategize about how they uh, how they could win um, the Grand Prix. So it was all just a little bit of a, of a of a shambles, I think, because I I get why they red flagged the race, and I completely agreed with that. Uh, what I didn't agree with, though, was sort of everything else that happened. Okay, the power outage was a little bit unfortunate and definitely prevented them from starting the race. But why didn't they do a standing start? Can any of you tell me, you know, categorically, why wasn't it a standing start? Because it's Monaco. It's the only interesting point of the race other than the pit stops. And they were like, nah, we won't do a standing <laughs> start. We'll do a, a rolling start. Let's just start the procession early. I hope you like the M25 because prepare for seven. 77 laps of that it you know if it wasn't for everything else that was going on it would have been an, a, an absolute disastrous race so thank goodness for that but i i, I still to this you know to, to today don't understand why we didn't do a rolling start it was they should have in my mind allowed teams to pick between wets and intermediates mm. and then Line them all up on the grid and did a standing start because it was pretty dry. I say you know, pretty dry, but it was relatively dry by the time they actually started the race. And and we know that because if you look at the time it took them to, to actually move on into dry tyres, well, you know, spoiler alert, that's about lap 21, lap 22, and we'll come on to that later on. So, you know, we were only half an hour, you know, 35 minutes away from going on to dry tyres. It was certainly dry enough for a standing start. And I felt like for this time, perhaps they were a little bit too safety conscious. And I'm the first to say that we need to be all about safety in Formula 1. I really am. But it's Monaco. You never go very fast anyway. And it wasn't that wet when they started. So, yeah, I felt like they were making it up as they went along. The whole Monaco sort of power outage issue was just yet another mess. And to be honest, I'm not surprised that F F you know, the FIA are struggling to get a deal down with Monaco because from this weekend, it seems like you know Monaco itself is is turning into a little bit of a sort of unruly you know teenager style track where it's just a little bit messy and you know very much you know, delayed. It's such a strange one, honestly. I mean, I still can't understand why they couldn't at least start the race in the conditions that they were. I genuinely cannot think of a time when... I mean, there have been races, of course, where they've delayed the start of the race, but, I mean, it wasn't even a downpour at 2 o'clock, as in 2 o'clock UK time when the race was going to start. Admittedly, the rain did come down a bit heavier after that, but could they not have started the race? I mean, it's absolutely fine to start a race and then... 20 minutes in it's too wet and you throw a red flag that's absolutely fine but I mean it just seemed like strange decision making to uh, and I know that the, the situation was more pressured and I get that they wanted to I sort of get why would they want to give the teams more time to prepare things to prepare tyres to, pre to prepare operations but would it not be more interesting if they weren't given that time to prepare if they were if it was thrown as a bit of a curveball at them I mean Formula 1 a lot of it these days is about it being not managed, but you know, you have your practice sessions where teams can gather tons of data. They can try and reduce as many variables as possible to try and uh, have a, as clean a weekend as possible. But throwing something into the mix, like what happened on on Sunday, on yesterday uh, in yesterday's race, it's not a bad thing. Surely, it makes it more interesting. It makes makes you see once and for all who will stand up and face the challenges compared to those who will crack under the pressure and. At the end of the day, what it, what ended up happening was, and I feel like we've had this a few times in recent years, is that we've had a race which could have been mostly wet and would have made more interesting, turned into a less of a spectacle because the race direction has gone, well, we'll just wait for it to dry up a little bit, we'll wait for the rain to go away a tiny bit. And by the time the rain does go away, it brings forward the window to change the dry tires, dry tires. it brings that forward a lot further than it could have been. And not that, not that a dry race immediately consigns it to being boring, don't get me wrong, but it makes for less of a spectacle. And if there's one place that needs something to add to a spectacle, it's Monaco. 
and for a race yesterday which could have been chaotic and could have produced some shock results, if you look at the finishing order, it's mostly, obviously the order of the Ferrari and Red Bull drivers was different to what we usually have, but mostly the order was quite academic, you know, there wasn't too much out of place, so I feel like they missed an opportunity. Now, of course, we don't have all the information, and if they if they perceived it to be too dangerous to start from a standing start or even after a lap under the safety car, of course, they have every right to make that decision. But at the same time, I feel like they maybe missed an opportunity to throw in a curveball and to make the situation more interesting and to possibly lead to more of a spectacle for us as fans. See, this is my main gripe, really, with how this is all handled. Once again, we're seeing race control with some really poor comms. We saw last season, didn't we, where decisions weren't explained very well. Abu Dhabi being the classic example of last year, and you thought they'd really whack the FIA and co around the head and go, you need to go and tell us what's going on, so not only can drivers, garages, but also fans understand what's going on. And I understand with the issue of the power outage, for example, they couldn't say that immediately, but we really did need someone to come down to a respective journalist or whatever and say, we've decided to delay because this... We've decided to put mandatory tyres for weights because of this. We're not doing a standing start once it was red flagged after the Schumacher crash because this, that and the other. And sure, if you look really hard enough, you know, you will see no doubt a statement from the FIA and the powers that be regarding this. But this should really be made available to everybody as soon as possible. And they're, in my view, as I say, repeating the same mistakes. I'm also of the view as well that because of Monaco, because of the unforgiving and borderline dangerous nature of the circuit in some conditions that's the reason why we saw a really hyper cautious approach from the from race control and co if we were at silverstone if we we're at uh, austria paul ricard any sort of non-street circuit with more expansive track shall we say where they're not so tight in with the barriers you wouldn't have seen i don't think this treatment being given we saw similarly as well they were very hyper cautious uh, last season when it came to spa because spa can be very dangerous going up a rouge we know that but I don't know if that means that this is in favour or against Monaco because of course if you take Monaco out of it because it's too dangerous and you know it's not very malleable in what it can produce with the conditions, then people go, well, what are we doing here? Is this really racing or are we doing this in such a controlled, safe or too safe environment where it just takes out all the spontaneity, all the variety and all the fun, really, from it? But then again, if it is to be taken out because it can't produce what needs to be produced in certain aspects, then... You know, is that kind of conundrum, really? But um, in my view, it serves as Monaco not really being fit for purpose within the lenses of the current powers that be when it comes to Formula One. Well, Monaco itself was designed around cars that were teeny tiny. By today's standards, the cars are now like two metres wide, for example. And even if they were really short, which they're not, they're still very, very long. You know, just that wide poses a big problem with Monaco because Monaco is technically too short and too thin to be classed as a Formula One grade track. It's only there because everyone sort of allows it to be there because we bend the rules just a little bit for Monaco, which I think we need to remember when it comes to Monaco because Monaco has so many quirks about it. For example, who this weekend felt like they understood exactly what was going on on the track at all times? What's that? Nobody. And that's because we had no idea what was going on because we weren't being shown what was going on. And why weren't we being shown what's going on? And that's because the TV system in Monaco, the people who operate the cameras and decide who what we're all being shown, the producers, they're not the usual F1 producers. They are enlisted by the, the, the Monegasque or race organisers, and they are local TV individuals who don't have experience running races. They have, I'm sure, lots of experience producing dramas or, or maybe boating shows, but they don't have the experience on producing a slick you know, racetrack um, grade, you know, uh, well choreographed show that demonstrates quickly and efficiently what's going on, because it's really difficult to do that. And the reason why it's uh in at monaco the uh production is given to a local station is because it's in the special terms and conditions that are, the FIA have for monaco 
And Monaco is a bit like that. It's very take, take, take. And it's very take, take, take because it knows that it's the jewel in the crown. It's the one uh-huh. that people spent hundreds of thousands of pounds at for a single weekend to dock their enormous boat in the harbour. And, ah, oh, look at us. We're going to Monaco this weekend to watch the Formula One. Pa ha ha ha. Brilliant. You know, there's nothing like it. And there really isn't because it, it sends a... a a sort of party atmosphere into the Formula One um, race weekend, something that Miami, for example, can only look on enviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the kind of race where I see on Twitter, for example, people are having like celebration barbecues and having champagne whilst they're watching. Brilliant spectacle. And Monaco knows that, and so they take and take and take. But they don't really give much back to Formula One, if we're brutally honest. Because... It does a great deal of service to Monaco's casinos and tourism benefits greatly. But for everyone else, it doesn't really perform very well as a track. And I think that's what we have to remember about Monaco is it is supposed to be primarily a racetrack. I mean, if we just take a look at the comments from Fernando Alonso at the weekend when he had Lewis Hamilton behind him. They asked him, how easy was it to keep Lewis Hamilton behind you? Um, and he said, well, we didn't know if we could finish the lap. So I uh, I managed a lot of the tyres for 15 laps and then I pushed for the 15, uh, the remaining 15 when they told me that Esteban had a penalty. It was extremely easy to keep Hamilton behind me. Extremely easy. Extremely easy to keep Lewis <laughs> Hamilton behind you whilst you're sort of nurturing tyres for 15 laps. And you're then willing to say that this is a decent track. Look, it wasn't. It's not a decent track. It was an absolute snooze fest for the last 35 minutes. You could have fallen asleep at the 35 minute mark. And woken up to see the exact same order (laughs) of the people crossing the line 35 minutes later. No track should be allowed to to be in Formula 1 if it's extremely easy to keep another car behind you. And this is the problem. It's just too thin. And so... Like every year, I ask both of you, what what can we do about it? If If we're going to have Monaco back on the calendar... What do we do? Well, I'm not too sure what can be done, really, because it's not like you can expand the track, because obviously it's going through those streets, it's very thin as is, you can't shift the buildings. I I honestly don't know, because then again, you've got to ask yourself, how much is Monaco willing to change? As you say, they're already the exception to the rule in so many aspects. They always, always have the glitz and glamour there, royalty, in fact. It's seen as a, such an important element of, of the, the Grand Prix calendar. You see every race is saying, it's my dream to win at Monaco. I want to win here more than anywhere else because of the history of it. I think it's a very black and white binary situation. You have Monaco as is, which as we saw in the last few laps of this race, where you saw the Red Bulls in Ferrari literally nose to tail, unable to overtake one another unless someone in front crashed or locked up their brakes. That it doesn't work, you know. You've got Albon and Gasly previously throughout the race going quickest, seconds quicker than other races. Not tenths, not hundredths, seconds, and they're down there in the bottom five, last at one point if you're Alex Albon. So unfortunately for me, you either have Monaco as is, you give it the love, you give it the jewel and the crown type name because of how long it's been in Formula 1, or you should do what you should have done many seasons ago, scrap it from the calendar and get a proper circuit like the Nürburgring in there, in my view. Yeah, as much as I, as you, as we are well aware, I'm the one of the group who is most in favour of Monaco, um, in comparison to to the to both of you. But I've got the circuit right in front of me at the moment, and I'm just yeah. I mean, what do you what do you change? I mean, it's a street circuit, and the thing with Monaco is that Monte Carlo, like the track is the is the is the nation state, so to speak. It's so tiny that you can't really change much at all. I mean, you could possibly get rid of the... You could possibly straighten out the swimming pool section, but the only problem is there's a swimming pool there, uh, which you'd have to go straight through. You could possibly straighten the main straight, but then there's some houses on the, the final corner. 
uh, there was one suggestion which I heard over the weekend, which was at the Nouvelle Chicane, they might move the barrier back because uh, it's right there on the on the entry curb. They might move it back to encourage drivers to go down the inside more. Where, where, but with it being that if you went down the inside and took a risk, if the barrier was further back, you would be less likely to clatter it if you misjudge your braking point or turned in too early. But the thing with Monaco, and I can't be the only one that feels this, you just see it and you see what's going on. It's just a spectacle. It's just the racing itself isn't much of a spectacle or hasn't been definitely in recent years, but something about it, man. Just there just something <laughs> is. And it's just it's just nice. It's aesthetically pleasing, what can I say? When it's in bright <laughs> sunshine and the track's just there and the cars are just going through it at, at their speeds that that camera angle you get for the first swimming pool chicane where the cars jilt left and right yeah. if you see the whole field going through there all at once it's satisfying i'm telling you um but as i i don't have as much of a leg to stand on as i used to when it comes to monaco because every year it seems there's more and more of a damning verdict of it just not producing the goods and especially if there's now going to be an american monaco in las vegas turning up next year <laughs> yeah like mm-hmm. well, monaco i'd say is more and more under threat and if the th- if the the whole scenario as we are led to believe with the 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 contract talks hitting a bit of a stall the fact that monaco is finally starting to having to pay a hosting fee when it it's pretty mad really that monaco was the only track that never used to pay a hosting fee such was its uh such was its notoriety it's a bit like how ferrari used to get 60 million pounds a year just for being old um, and for being mm. in the sport but yeah Monaco's future looks probably as risk as risky as it has in its history quite possibly but I can't be the only one where who thinks that it's just something about it it's just um, not that I'm fully endorsing it but it's just it's just um, yeah I, I can't explain it it's more of a sight for the eyes than anything nowadays but its future is looking more and more perilous the year on year I'd say I think there there is a way to fix it. And you've already said about the Nouvelle Chicane, which is arguably the only one of the very few areas that a braking zone can induce overtaking easily in Monaco because you have to go round the chicane. The problem is, is it's a very tight chicane. So the first thing you could do is make it slightly thinner as in the chicane, to widen the track so you get two cars alongside each other there. Because effectively, the problem is, is if you try and go on the outside of the person in front of you, then they immediately have to cut back in again because you go left, then right, and then you're just going to collide. And if you go straight over, you have to yield it anyway. So you either take out the chicane and make it a full straight so you can drag out-drag your, um, your rival, but I think a solution, if we're seriously serious about Monaco, is we should look at building into the ocean a little bit and pushing back the harbour. And it's 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 not something that is is undertaken lightly, and is definitely a big challenge. But it's certainly possible to reclaim land from the sea, and around where sort of swimming pool and the the boat club the yacht club and nouvelle chicane that sort of area which is where the massive super yachts all dock well there's already you know a nice bit of concrete there anyway i say that we expand it by about three or four meters into the ocean and then expand the track out there you go that that would fix it and you know that's a huge job to do massive engineering task but it's possible and it could be done. I'm not saying Monaco will do it. I'm almost certainly they won't because they are an ultra-conservative mini-state that has no interest whatsoever in changing its ways to satisfy anyone else other than its own residents. But if you want to keep Monaco, is you've got to make it interesting because otherwise, hey, we, we, we are going to have to think of new ways to make Monaco interesting. Maybe Pirelli will bring uh, super high degradation tyres so we have a three or four you know, pit stop race or something like that. So Monaco, it's it was a more interesting race than we've had in previous years. But I would I wouldn't still have it on the on the calendar. I don't think when we went when we missed it in 2020 we particularly missed it uh, you know missed out on anything 
I'm I'm of the opinion that it should go into a pool of races that we go to every like three years. You know, cross it with Magello, you know, Monaco and uh, Miami for the three M's. You'd be like, it's the triple M, you know, or something like that. Mm. Or maybe maybe you could have like Monaco, Miami and Las Vegas. Right. You know, that each one of them is a is a tight circuit and a party atmosphere. So that that's how you'd solve that problem, Angus, which is, as you said, you know, we've got Las Vegas, which is going to be directly competing. Maybe that's what we do. Maybe we have like a party track of the year, one of them being Las Vegas, one of them being Monaco. And that way we solve all the problems. You know, they're, they're, we, we don't think Las Vegas is necessarily going to add anything to the year and we don't think Monaco is. So having both of them on the track on the calendar isn't going to be particularly useful, I don't think. But if we're going to have them, why don't we start alternating between the tracks and bringing in, you know, you could you could even have like the Nürburgring, Tom, add that in. So you could go one year to Nürburgring. The mm. next year we go to Monaco instead. And the year after that, we go to Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, and then you could create a new triple crown. You know, were you able to win it? All three of those of those venues. I don't know. I'm just putting food for thought out there because I agree, Angus, that we don't necessarily want to get rid of it altogether because you know i was pretty hyped for the monaco grand prix especially as it you know was kind of spa 2.0 at one point with the amount of rain coming down and but if the fia is insisting that we're going to go back which by the way is in jeopardy because their f1 doesn't currently have a contract for next year i don't know if you heard that Mm. yeah but if they do get their act together and and iron out those kinks and we are going to go back then some changes have to be made but I mean, what do you think? Do you think we are? They are gonna sign and and go back next year. What do you think the sticking points are at the moment? Well, just on a slight caveat, I've got a slightly different plan for Monaco's future that I've hatched in the last ten minutes or so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so bear with me. How long have I been with talking? My... <laughs> with my realistic hat on, obviously Monaco is not going to go. I, don't, I think it is going to return to Formula One next year and for the foreseeable future, uh, come what may the contract looks like. And it's quite clear that Monaco likes its ego to be tickled and pruned and looked after, really. So being realistic, it's going to stay. And it likes to be the jewel in the crown. So why don't we do what other sports do? Have a sort of one-off fixture race as a curtain raiser for the season. Like a sort of Community Shield, UEFA Super Cup, Monaco race type thing. Have that before the season. Whoever wins becomes the winner of Monaco. Congratulations, you're the greatest driver ever, etc. And then we get on with the rest of the season. Have some decent racetracks in there. We still have Monaco. It still gets its glitz and glam. There's another event there for the TV camera and co to uh, have a look at the racers still get to go there because they love the circuit so much everyone's a winner it doesn't affect the season but it's still there halfway house what do we what do we what do we, uh, what do we think could get on board with that i reckon um i think with, with with monaco i think the reason why the reason why it's such a big issue is that human beings are naturally adverse i feel like human beings are naturally averse to change mm. but at the same time we do like variety to spice things up. You know, we're awfully contradictory um, <laughs> specimens. <laughs> yes. But I think that something like Monaco being off the calendar would be as much as we, obviously we joke about like, oh, we could just take land from the sea or we could have this alternative arrangement or we could rotate it or any suggestion. Monaco being off the calendar, I think, would be seismic. It would be absolute for a race that... Other than last, the pandemic year, the first pandemic year, 2020, has been on the calendar for every single year in the history of Formula One. And for like the 15, 20 years before that, before Formula One was a thing, bar the the years of World War Two, of course, I think it would just be it would just be hugely seismic, honestly. And I feel like whilst F1 is prepared to make big steps and they're not afraid to be bold, i.e. bringing in events in Miami or Las Vegas or having events such as Spa or Silverstone at risk, as they have been over the years, I think Monaco being off the calendar would be just be too seismic, even for their liking. It would be like if, in football, you took away the FA Cup or something like that. A massive event which happens year on year and people look forward to it, even if it has periods where it's a bit rubbish and there's not much going for it. It's still a huge event and people look forward to it. So I, th- I almost think 
it'll be too seismic. Not that anything can be too seismic, if you get me, but it'll be too seismic to take F, uh, take take F one off the calendar, to take Monaco off the calendar. Um, that's why I just can't see like much changing with it. And not it's not even that Monaco has F one by the scruff of the neck, saying you must meet our terms, and otherwise, you know, we just uh, we won't play ball. But it just it'd just be too seismic for Monaco to go off the calendar, I feel. And that's why not not the F one would be afraid to make the change, but they just couldn't foresee a world without Monaco. But under the Claybon compromise, it's still on the calendar, it's just bolted on at the front with its you know, glitz and glamour around it more. So Yeah, but it would be in March, wouldn't it? And unfortunately you've got to remember, Tom, temperature mm. is a big thing. And it's uh, average temperatures in Monaco. This, by the way, is not a piece of information I retain in my head. I've just looked it up. Um, <laughs> average temperatures in Monaco in March is about nine degrees Celsius, which is see no issue. Ooh. I mean, I, it, Monaco is basically a party. What, we'll give it a go. No one is wants to die, you know dive into swimming pool in you know, nine degrees. It's a good idea, but I I I take your idea, and I say we put it in the middle of the summer break. We extend ah. the summer break by another week. So sort of seven weeks. And then on week four, we have the midsummer break madness. Everyone's in Europe anyway. All the drivers return back home to their, their country of origin, Monaco, anyway. And they're there. Why not? But yeah, I, I kind of see what you're saying, Tom. We'll remove it out of the calendar. But again, it's a, it's a lot of effort for no reward then. And I don't, and I agree with Angus. I think people are too cynical for that sort of change. And I don't think Monaco buy into that anyway. They're going to throw a big, you know, circus and put on a huge event for all these drivers that are just not going to get anything out of it. So Monaco's here to stay, I think. But you know, Angus, we did actually experience a year without Monaco. So what the biggest, mm. the biggest contribution to change is usually or lasting change is usually when people get a taste of what it's like to get, you know, something different. And once you've given something mm. to someone, you can't take it away. And we had a year without Monaco and I didn't feel like I was at a loss at the end of it. So not at all. I guess news to come, I think about whether or not F1, it renews its contract. But if it does, I so hope that F1 gets control of those cameras because look, I, they did a <laughs> lovely job. They really did. But we didn't see what was going on. We had, you know, we had cars spinning out and us just not being shown what was going on. Track violations that just weren't, you know, being displayed to us. The The narrative from the commentators was not matching. This was what it was. The narrative from the commentators was not matching what we were seeing on screen. So I had to sort of ignore what my eyes were saying and just be like, right, concentrate on Crofty because he's the one that has the timing, you know, screen in front of him. Or even more radical solution... We have it as the final race of the season in mid-December. We make it a night race <laughs> and we put sprinklers on the track. Ah, the go. full Bernie, Bernie Eccleston yep. solution. I see. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, for once, I think Bernie may have Bernie, but Burnley. I think Bernie <laughs> may have had a point on this occasion. Uh, mm. I say get the curves back as well and the super super soft tires. No pit stops. There we go. Yep. And now getting on to what actually happened on the track. They qualified Leclerc first, Sainz second, Perez third, Verstappen fourth. And as we've hinted at, the same cards are there, but in a different order. Perez winning this one, Sainz second, Verstappen third, and Leclerc fourth. And this all started, didn't it, when it came to the pit stops. They were really king when it came to deciding how these drivers ended up versus how they entered the circuit on a Sunday. You had Leclerc and Max pitting for inters. That was the Ferrari and Red Bull strategy that they were told to both drivers. But Sainz said, no, 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 I'm going to go from wets to slicks, skip out the inters. We've seen previously, many a year ago, Lewis, Lewis Hamilton did similar, won the race. And as we say, track position is king when it comes to Monaco. There's very few, if uh, well, really none, overtaking points, as some would argue there. So you've got to just stay in front, stay as high as you can in terms of position and just hope for the best. 
So that worked out fairly well, you could say, for signs there. Went against the grain when it came to team orders. Uh, but then Perez pitted for Inters before Max and uh, Leclerc, I should add, and put in some really good laps because we saw earlier, didn't we? Albon and Gasly going very early there for the intermediate tyres. People saying, was well, it too early? Should they stay on wet? So have they really, however, jumped ahead of the pack here and um, got onto the Inters just the right time, knocking some great laps and uh, doing that. So all eyes were on them. Perez put some real pressure there uh, on the uh, Ferrari cars there. 13, uh, 11 seconds sorry, um, behind Sainz post-pit and that sort of forced him then to go under slicks there. Sainz forced him to go for that gamble which to be honest looking back at it it was very unknown whether it was going to be the right one or really a bit of a crackpot theory which was going to go horribly wrong. Thankfully for him came very right. So Sainz comes in lap 21. Leclerc follows but there's a lot of confusion there. These so-called bulletproof Ferrari I was talking about, gone maybe, gone, because it was come in, no stay out, oh, bit too late, I'm already in, and yeah, what do we make of that? Was it one of those where Ferrari bottled it with Leclerc, or did Red Bull performing the overcut there, and uh, Perez putting pressure, pounce and do really well, and uh, win the race really, purely by their strategy, and not Ferrari's mishaps? I mean, this was a perfect execution of Leclerc's wonderful race um it, it couldn't have been planned better if Red Bull and Ferrari had sat down and gone right how do you want to ruin it for Leclerc this year hey eh? um <laughs> yeah and the, to make it worse us spectators it, I felt like it was very difficult to track exactly what was going on because as I say you were getting the one narration from the commentators and we were seeing stuff that was completely different on the screen. Irrelevant on the screen. So, to break it down very, very slowly, you know, it's important to note that, that Perez, on lap 17, decides to pit for intermediates as the track was dry enough inters but not for slicks. And Ferrari then react and pit Leclerc. So that bit was, was good, okay? Ferrari did a good job then. On lap 17... Red Bull jump first to go to intermediates and then Ferrari react and pit Leclerc. Unfortunately, and this isn't Ferrari's fault, you know, because the intermediates were faster than the full wets, Leclerc has to do another lap whilst Perez is in the pits. And then when Perez returns the favour and does a lap whilst Leclerc is in the pits, because Perez's lap is faster than Leclerc's one, he comes out behind Leclerc comes out behind Paris so that really wasn't Ferrari's fault it was really interesting to see Carlos Sainz on the radio because um, Ferrari then say to Carlos Sainz right you in and uh, he basically just defies team audience and says nope I'm staying out on these wet tyres because he knows that he will be 24, 25 seconds ahead of everyone else who does pit so he's you know he thinks right well I'm gonna I'm gonna be you know so far ahead right now that if it if the track dries out which i can see it is then everyone's gonna have to do another pit stop anyway and so carlos sites i think kind of had a key in to the way the track was evolving that ferrari on the pit wall didn't and in fairness to them i think they did the right choice um you know pitting leclerc and science was kind of playing his own game which unfortunately is just you know the way it works sometimes, you can't force a driver in. And so, unfortunately, I think this is where things start going wrong. The, as Carlos Sainz knew very well that in, in a few laps time, the track was going to be dry. And that lap was 21. So, lap, you know, four laps later from when Perez pits, Carlos Sainz goes, right, it's time for dries. And so, I feel like, Ferrari should have spoken to the drivers a little bit then before they pitted Leclerc and said look well how many laps do you think it's going to be till it dries and you know if Sainz is saying no no it's really dry then you know perhaps it you know maybe it was a mistake pitting Leclerc but at the end of the day you've got to react and so Sainz pits on lap 21 but it's important to note that the intermediate tyres are still slightly quicker than the dries because Carlos Sainz goes on the dries comes out and he's actually lapping ever so slightly slower than Perez. And so, Perez, who's on those slightly faster intermediate tyres, well, 
he comes in a lap later after Ferrari, because Red Bull were reacting now to Ferrari, and he overcuts them and comes out in front. But unfortunately, as you say, Tom, Ferrari decide to really ruin Leclerc's race by calling him in when they, when Carlos Sainz comes in. So not only does Leclerc basically pit twice in the space of five laps, mm. but he then gets stuck behind his teammate who, you know, has played the overcut on him and then he gets stuck behind whilst it's in the pits and he comes out, you know, behind both Verstappen and Perez and Perez is now in the lead. So as I say, it was a perfect execution. Leclerc got undercut by Perez, then overcut by Perez, got overcut entirely by Sainz, and then Ferrari decided to really hammer it home by ruining his pit stop. (laughs) And that's how you go from first to fourth in Monaco. Absolutely beautiful. So yeah, the first part of it I would say isn't Ferrari's fault. Definitely <laughs> reacting to Red Bull, they had no other choice. But I think they should have been more clued in and maybe Leclerc should have been a bit more clued in to the 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 way the track was starting to evolve because Leclerc had no one in front of him. He had the same information Carlos Sainz had. I just wonder why Sainz was so much more confident saying, no, we can mm. uh, we can stay out a bit longer here and go straight to dries. Because I think it would have, you know, perhaps gone the other way. Um, and, well, there we go. It is really just rather unfortunate, actually, I think, that it, it got played out as it did. But definitely the biggest mistake was Leclerc being called in behind signs that just should not have happened i don't know how it happened in fact i'm sure there was um some strong words in in um said between the the engineers after he got called in but you could hear the anger in the clerk's voice when he he realizes as he turns into the pit that his teammates only just in front of him and he's gonna have to he's gonna have to wait although um the the best angry moment of the race weekend goes to a certain Lance Stroll literally screaming down the mic in qualifying as he gets told he gets 18th place I've never what a it was the sound of someone who usually gets their own way not getting their way so yeah that's that's my analysis of Ferrari it was a typically Ferrari execution um but fair place to Carlos Sainz though because look I know I know he didn't get the race win but he was the one that was the most in tune to the track i think you've summed it up pretty well there tristan i think i'm trying to think how much i can have to add but the main thing i would add to it personally is i'm fascinated to know we're talking from the ferrari perspective now how much they pay attention to the outside world the noise (laughs) in it and by that by that by that i mean how because there is a narrative rightly or wrongly fairly or unfairly in the media and on social media, although we know how much of a, a barometer social media can not be sometimes, there's a narrative that Ferrari can't work strategy, they are useless at it, they bottle it every single time. Whenever there's a pressure moment that requires a clear head, they are the antithesis of that and it leads to them throwing away a good results or marginalising, marginally compromising a good result or a, an excellent result. Because... They seem to they seem to be doing these things less regularly this year. I'll give them that, and maybe with them with more at stake, they are better under pressure that way, which is quite, which would be quite an interesting psychological thing to investigate. But just simple things like science is already in the pits. Why are you bringing Leclerc in? Like what? I don't I don't get it. And you almost think any organization which is worth its salt would target its biggest weakness, identify it, target it. And then strive to improve on it and strive to make it not a weakness anymore. But Ferrari have had a weakness now with strategy for a few years. And every single time, that not every single time, but often when there's a pressure moment and it requires them making a decision which would benefit one of their drivers, it seems to do the opposite. And it's really strange how it keeps on happening. And admittedly... In previous years, it happened in scenarios where, you know, they were 
just fighting for podiums or especially in the last two years where their car has been off it a bit and you sort of thought uh oh, a bit it's a bit stupid the call they made but at the end of the day it was the difference between fifth and sixth so you know could be worse but now they are fighting for a literal world championship and they started off the season out the blocks so quickly that these decisions that they make which might go against them won't just cost them a couple of points it could cost them a championship and they really need to up their game realistically because these strategic uh, fallacies should we call them will cost them not just against one Red Bull car but now against two Red Bull cars with Perez looking more and more like a hot prospect and a real threat in that fight so I'm just fascinated, but go back to my original point, I'm fascinated by whether, if Ferrari were worth their salt, really, they would block out all this outside noise and all the, I'm not suggesting the Ferrari mechanics and strategists go on Twitter after the race and scroll through their timelines to see the memes about their, their strategy mistakes. But you'd think that they'd at, least, they'd at least like be focusing on improving themselves. And it makes you think for them to be making these mistakes again and again, what is the cause of that? that improvement not coming about it's really it's a really strange one and of course it's fixable of course it's not a terminal issue where whenever there's a strategy call to make they're gonna they're gonna sink and and melt and not be able to to be making the right judgment but it's strange how it continues to persist and it makes you think is it something they'll fix quickly enough for them to rein back this championship fight I totally get what you mean there, Angus, but I think it's being a bit harsh on Ferrari there, considering we're, what, seven races in, and this is the first time we're talking about strategic errors by Ferrari. I mean, yes, historically, looking back to last year, they did make some rather questionable decisions, but before this, looking at Saudi Arabia, for example, Bahrain, Australia, well, all the races, really, aside from Monaco, they seem to have got the big calls right and be screwed over, for want of a better phrase, by either... Signs not finishing for one other reason, or Leclerc pushing too hard. So I don't think the issue's terminal, but I think it's probably wakened us up to the fact that it's still there and they've not solved it. I suppose one of the most interesting things coming from this is that if you're looking at it from Ferrari's eyes, they've actually lost this race unfairly because after it they protested against both Red Bull drivers for those who don't know saying that they crossed the yellow line when exiting the uh, pit lane on lap 23. Bonotto saying they want to seek clarification over a clear breach of the regulations. Spoiler alert, it's been thrown out by the powers that be. There's some confusion once again, though, seemingly about the regulations, about what is on the line, what is over the line, what do they mean? Do Ferrari have a point? Is it wrong for this to be thrown out so quickly? Do they have a case or not so much? Oh no! I saw, I've, uh, sorry. Um, when you said, when you said, for those who don't know, my brain went. Well, of course we don't know. We didn't see it, uh, which we didn't in the race. <laughs> they decided that was uninteresting. Um, so we saw the thing that came up. That was like, ah, oh, investigation on <laughs> Verstappen and Perez, and they they went, nah, we just won't show you it. <laughs> so um, I went mm, back and should... watched it, and effectively, mm. what it is is, in the case of Verstappen, he comes out of the pits and. There is a white line that goes around the track, in Monaco's case, on the right-hand side, and you're not allowed to cross that white line. You have to stay within that white line, within a portion of the track. And the reason for that, Monaco, is so that you can't accelerate across and get a great, you know, flying star out of the... um, out of the pits and immediately take the track position from the person who's coming down the pit straight. Okay, so that's why we don't. That's why we have the white line. If you don't know, it's basically to stop the person in the pits getting an unfair advantage. Now, Max Verstappen follows the white line and it goes around a corner. And just as he's getting to the very end of the white line, he gets a snap of oversteer, and the car spins to the left, and he gets onto the white line. But not over it. So, to be clear, it was lucky, but he gets on it, not over it. So, it's fine. It's, in my mind, it's the same rules as the track limits. Which, to be fair, I don't think we've said this. Have we said this already? That the, um, this year, that the the FIA seems to be really on it with track limits. Thank you so much. They've defined the track limits as the white line. If you're all four, um, 
wheels go over the, the white line. That's it. You're off the track. Good. Thank you. Easy peasy. Nicely defined. And again, they've defined it very easily. Uh, you're allowed to go on the white line of the when you come out of the pits but you're not allowed to go over it and he doesn't so yeah thrown out easy peasy pretty binary if he went over the white line then he would be um penalized for it so i don't really know why ferrari are trying to introduce a new gray area because it's pretty clear in the rules that it's over the white line not you know you can't touch the white line because that'd be absolutely ridiculous i mean these cars are two meters wide it's hard enough trying to steer them on monaco and not go over the white line but hey did, and both of them touch the white line but they don't cross it and that's i think clear um looking back at the replays just so we're aware ferrari are saying that the director's notes say that on the line is over the line and that's the reason why they put forward this process just out of interest but go on angus yeah, the white line one is interesting because, I mean, from my point of view, it looked like Verstappen, I've only seen the image of Verstappen, but he looked like he was over the line. Um, and I get that it's slippy, and I get that the track was a bit wet, and I get also that in Monaco, with it being a street circuit, inevitably, there are more white lines like you would get on a normal carriageway, on a normal road, because clearly the the track is road outside of the race weekend but would the rule is the should the rules not be applied consistently that would be my only thing and it would be it would perhaps be easy to look at ferrari and think wow they lost the race so of course they're making this complaint because you know they're just uh they're just upset they lost the race and they're trying to find a way to get it back in their hands but in a sport which is about like it's not it's not about rules but if rules are there they should be applied consistently then surely being over the white line would be worthy of a penalty which is consistent with previous offences, I would say. It's too late to speculate now because the FIA has overruled the protest, but Ferrari, I'd say, have a shout when it comes to that, to and a shout and a reason to be potentially unhappy with the call. You, aren't they? Once again, we're seeing a sort of Lance Stroll 2021 version where we need to go and see one thing. Last year it was some actual action on the track, and this year it is quite clearly perhaps a race defining incident when it comes to who wins this race. I suppose the interesting question would be if they were given it in the race, would that have affected it? Probably you would say because the penalties there range from what five seconds, ten seconds plus. We saw right at the end they were so close together. Um, despite us not even being able to reach the 77 laps, of course. We were on that countdown, weren't we, for the last sort of 30 minutes or so because we'd reached the allotted two-hour time there. So we only got 50. So once again, there's a great what-if of this Grand Prix. If we had the four laps, if penalties had been given, if there was a more thorough investigation, Ferrari would argue, would we have had a different race and would we be talking about how Ferrari did, you know, quite a good job, all things considered, or how they got a bit lucky versus how they were slightly unlucky, let's say, with uh, Leclerc spinning, for example, or uh, Sainz beaching it in the gravel when it came to Spain, but um, I think regardless of whether this protest went in the favour of Ferrari or Red Bull, Sure, there's clarification here when it comes to the rules of this and um, clarification obviously has not been given when I speak about the race notes from the race director there about being on the line is over the line, then this protest being thrown out. You've got to look at this weekend for Ferrari and say it's been a bit of a missed opportunity, you know, one, two at Monaco. How many times are you going to throw that away in your Formula 1 career? I mean, when that was done and dusted on Saturday and I heard of rain, I thought, oh, okay, we may get a Sainz first and a Leclerc second or third. Ooh, it was spicy. But really, to go and throw away the track position, um, Ferrari doing this here this weekend is a real own goal. It, it comes as well, doesn't it, where... We were looking, or I was particularly looking for a response from Ferrari because looking back at the last four races, a Red Bull has won four out of four, three for Verstappen and uh, one there for Perez, which, as we hinted at there, he's firmly back in 
to this race, isn't it, when it comes to the Drivers' Championship? Many will argue, well, if there wasn't team orders of Barcelona, it would be even tighter. Perez would be second, hypothetically, closing in on Verstappen. And if you're looking at that from a team game perspective, from a constructor's perspective, if only there was a championship for that, you would have... One, two there in the drivers and then a more comfortable position when it came to the constructors. But obviously saying this now, when Monaco's done and dusted and Perez has shown his quality there. And, you know, one or two comments as well saying to Christian Horner there after the race, I should have joined this year, hinting that it was more the car holding him back last year and team orders and all that sort of stuff versus his capacity. You know, it's very easy to say this now, but uh, we could see uh, a, a clearer battle for... Uh, the Drivers' Championship between three cars now versus two because with respect to signs, yes, he's got a P2 here, but um, those two retirements there are very much an issue for him. But what do we think? Is the Championship battle back on or are Red Bull going to hold Perez back and just make it seemingly a battle between their man and the other man, Leclerc? Uh, well, I don't know. Red Bull are very defensive of Max and he's his boy, so I, I, can't, I can't really say, but... You say that Ferrari has actually had quite a good track record this year of being relatively responsible when it comes to their strategy and quite on it. But do you think there's an argument to be said that the other things that have gone on around Ferrari have actually saved them from making poor mistakes? Um, For example, Sainz keeps dumping his car into the gravel. Charles (laughs) Leclerc's car broke down. Max Verstappen... And Sergio Perez have had reliability issues um, throughout the season so far. And so they've never really been under pressure, let's say, because either their driver or the other drivers around them are having problems. So I felt like this perhaps was the first test when there was no reliability issues of, of their metal. And perhaps the old Ferrari came back. What do you think? Hmm. Quite possibly, yeah, quite possibly. If we look back at Saudi Arabia, for example, that was the last sort of straight-out fight between Leclerc and Verstappen. Verstappen robbed home there with a victory. And looking at it there, you've got reliability issues, as you say, there for Verstappen. And and those have been where Leclerc's poles have come from there. The only thing I'd say about Ferrari is, I'm judging it from a relative standpoint, insofar that I wouldn't say they're on it when it comes to strategy or they're level with Red Bull, but they seem to have improved and stepped up from last season. Granted, that's from a relatively low bar because, as we say, they were making very odd calls and you would see as well, or hear, should I say, from the team radio of Leclerc being uh, out in front. I think it was in Turkey, if memory serves me correctly, and he goes... If I stay out, where will I finish? And then the comment comes back, if you stay out, you will be in P1 and win the race. (laughs) But, I mean, obviously, in theory, that is true, right? Yeah, but I think think if I was uh, speaking on behalf of Charles Leclerc, he's thinking more, you know, how long will my tyres last out? Where could I possibly finish if I don't pit again? Anyhow, so yeah, I wouldn't say they're bulletproof, but they're certainly improving or have improved on what's gone by. A lack of competition in many races certainly perhaps papered over the cracks, but I wouldn't perhaps say that they are of their old ways, but still work to be done. I would say, in answer to the original question, the championship battle looks on, doesn't it? And it's not just two of them, it's three. Mm. I mean, Perez is on fantastic form, and he's finally, it looks like, got grips of that Red Bull. It'd be fascinating to see whether not that we're not that fireworks and uh, chaos and argument are going to result from this resurgence of Perez, resurgence of Perez. But he was signed to be a competitive number two who could stay behind Verstappen, but also help them win the constructors' championship. And now they're leading both championships, but Perez looks like a threat for the drivers' championship. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens going forward. Has science got too much ground to make up? Who knows? I mean, Perez had a bit of ground to make up and he's come storming back. Verstappen had a 45-point deficit to make up from Leclerc and now he's leading the championship by nine. Will George Russell be a dark horse in the championship? Maybe not, but, you know, it's it's good to throw the line out there, you know, to uh, play this back in six months' time or whatever. But, yeah, championship looks on. And now that we are over the hill of Monaco, uh, which for some people will be an absolute delight, we've got... We're heading into the middle part of the season. 
Azerbaijan next. That often is chaos. And, I mean, last year's race was chaos for sure, wasn't it? But let's see if that is repeated in two weeks' time. And it seems that's all we have time for in terms of episode 14 of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this episode and for tuning in, be that via your preferred podcast provider of choice. A reminder, you can follow myself, Tristan, and F1 in Review on Twitter. We all have our own accounts on there. F1 in Review is all like that. Our next Grand Prix we have, round 8, is Baku in Azerbaijan. However, that starts on June the 10th, so we've got many a week to wait for that one and in the meantime we'll be unpacking the rest of Monaco because yes aside from Ferrari and Red Bull fighting there is more to unpack namely the form of Mr. Ricardo and the crash of Mr. Schumacher reoccurring events some would say but thank you very much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode goodbye